and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm thrilled you can join us today. We're going to have a fascinating conversation, as we always do. And one of my favorite peeps is going to be with us, Sherry Snelling. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Me Time Monday, How Caregivers Can Find Balance and Joy. And don't we all need to know how to do that much, much better. But before uh, we introduce you to Sherry. Um, I just want to give a shout out to the Area Agency on Aging in the Panhandle in Texas. I'm going to be down there on November 10th doing a full day conference for their 17th annual caregiver conference. You can still register for that at 806 331 2227. Also, I want to invite you to join our Memory Cafe which is sponsored by Arthur Senior Care. We do that the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month. Just email me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com and we can get you connected with that. And also, if you're in Minnesota, on the fourth Wednesday of every month, I do a Caregiver Connect program as well at the Shoreview Community Center. And again, just reach out to me for that, or you can register by calling uh, the Shoreview Community Center at 763-913-6140. And then, of course, I I want to just mention to check out all of our fabulous uh, free educational resources on alzheimerspeaks.com. You can also find out about our book, which is the children's book, Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. So let's go ahead and introduce you to Sherry. Well, Sherry, I am so excited to have you back on the show. So thanks so much for taking time out of your day to be with us. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here, Lori. Well, you know, I always ask everybody who's been on our show, and even if you've been here before, I still ask because we always have new listeners. But Um, Have you been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends? You know, I I think there's so few of us now who haven't been, but in my immediate family, we actually have not had any cases of dementia or Alzheimer's, at least as far back as we know, right? We, because we're, we weren't so good at diagnosing this disease many years ago, we could have possibly, but it's really been more about my friend circle. I have right now, uh, four very good friends, all who have mothers with Alzheimer's. So they're in different stages and progression of the disease. Um, I We also have some family friends, uh, very dear friends that I kind of grew up with their boys and they were best friends of my parents and um, his wife had Alzheimer's. And so it's really something that you know, in, in terms of being in caregiving, which I've been in now for the last 20 years, working for different companies that have benefits and programs for caregivers, I've always said that all caregivers face a lot of stress and a lot of challenges, but there's something really special 
about Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers. And I think it's because of the nature of the disease and the fact that we don't still know a whole lot about it makes it really, really tough on caregivers that I've observed and that I talk to a lot. Thank you for sharing that. Can you also share with our audience a little bit about yourself and introduce, you know, who the heck is Sherry Snelling? <laughs> exactly. What is this crazy girl? on your your program today. Well, thank you for that. I, you know, um, I, as I mentioned, I've been in this space of caregiving and aging for about the last 20 years. Um, I'm a corporate gerontologist. I have a master's in gerontology and gerontology. A lot of people think is, oh, okay. You focus on just older people. Well, actually gerontology is about looking at life from birth to death, or as we call it from the womb to the tomb, um, and it's about what are the lifestyle choices and also the genetics that may make some of us live longer, live healthier, and even live happier. So we kind of explore and analyze that whole life course perspective. And then I've been an author. Um, this is actually my second book that's come out, my first book, which is, I think when you had me on the program, I have to thank you for that. Uh, but it came out 10 years ago. It was called A Cast of Caregivers. And I got into healthcare working in um, for companies. Uh, one is, is based there in Minnesota, I think where you are, Lori, one of the largest healthcare insurance companies uh, globally. And I worked on caregiver programs. So services and benefits that either went into employers or were embedded in, you know, retiree plans and Medicare Advantage plans that gave support to the family caregivers, obviously, who were caring for older loved ones. So that's kind of my, my professional background. And then from there, I started my own company, Caregiving Club, and I've been on a lot of advisory boards and, and other things. And I do a lot of educational content now for employers, for their employees, because we know one in six employees out there are caring for someone over the age of 50. And if you want to just talk about just caring for anybody, so that could be kids, special needs, children, spouse, sibling, all the way up to parents and grandparents, it's one in three employees. So I've really kind of been more focused in that employer channel. And then personally, I was a backup caregiver to my mom who cared for both of my maternal grandparents. My grandmother had a stroke so I understand, you know, a little bit of what goes on with the brain and, you know, the challenges with language and communication and, and you know, all the activities of daily living. And my grandfather had cancer. That's what finally took him. And then more recently, I was a caregiver for both my dad and my stepdad, both of whom I lost to cancer. And I mentioned earlier the the specific challenge, I think, that Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers had, you know, up until the day they died, both my dad and my stepdad knew who I was. And I think what's so heartbreaking to me is to watch families, the emotional side of caregiving when your mom or your dad doesn't know who you are anymore. And I have my, my dear, I call him my boyfriend, but we say we're too old for him to be a boy. So I guess he's my man friend. <laughs> but he's, he's actually uh, taking care of his mom now who has Parkinson's with some dementia and uh, she forgets sometimes who he is. And I know that's really painful, you know, for him to experience. So I think that there's so many different things with this disease that make it a lot tougher on families. Well, I'm so glad that you are in, you know, that kind of corporate world because it is so critical. There are so many families that, and individuals that are worried about losing their job if anybody knows. And so it's kind of this hidden secret. And I, I almost kind of question if the numbers are even accurate, because I think like with dementia, so many people don't want to disclose because they don't want people to know. 
you right. know, who they're caring for, what's going on in their life. And, and I just think with businesses having such a difficult time, you know, with staffing and stuff, this is a critical piece for them to really be able to help and support and build their teams and have a cohesiveness and, and give people that safety net, which I think is really missing a lot in the corporate world from the everyday perception of people. Um, the loyalty back and forth, you know, has really shifted a lot. And, it, you know, it's just such a critical piece because nobody wants to lose their job because they're caring for a loved one. And, yeah. uh, and feeling that extra pressure of care can affect someone's job and their sleep and their eating habits. And I mean, there's just so much that goes into, into all of it. Now, I want to just give a, a plug for your first book, which was uh, a cast of caregivers, celebrity stories to help help you prepare to care, which was a huge hit. And people just absolutely loved that book. And now your new book is out called Me Time um, and the weekly wellness plan to find balance and joy for a busy, busy life, which is absolutely wonderful. And I love that it's, it's, you know, hard covered. I mean, it just feels so precious just to hold. I mean, even the cover is kind of soft and things. Um, it's just, it, it just really, really feels um, good and just looks intriguing. I've got a few pages that, that I've even earmarked. Well, as an author, you know, we're all in love with our books, right? We, we love our writing and all that. But I have to tell you, I was saying earlier, I love the cover of my book. I, I'm really in love with the look of that and how it turned out. So I was very happy about that. So how did you come up with the title for the book? Well, it's interesting because in my first book, um, and again, written 10 years ago, the whole last half of that book was really about self-care for caregivers, different tips and solutions. And I had a, a concept at the time, which became a program for employers called Me Time Monday. And it was all built around kind of three things. One was, first of all, we have to take baby steps in our self-care. You know, so often I feel like the messaging out there for wellness programs and, you know, new nutrition and exercise and meditation and all this, it's self-defeating because as caregivers, we don't have any time to, to do 45 minutes on, you know, the treadmill or whatever it is. And so it, it becomes, you know, kind of something that actually, we're, you know, works against us. So the whole concept of Me Time Monday is baby steps. And it might be something as simple as taking a pause for five minutes and staring out a window onto the beautiful scenery of the seasons and really using that multi-sensory, you know, what can you smell? What can you hear? What can you touch? You know, what can you taste? What, you know, what do you see? And that kind of pause while meditative in some ways also just brings our body back into balance and a lot of what the second book is about is after I got my master's in gerontology, I really specialized in the neuroscience and the brain health aspect of aging. And so this whole multi-sensory is a, is a real big piece of that, but it's, so it's baby steps. And then using Monday as what I call the re reward and reset day. So what it does is it gives you a whole week to try to find a few moments of self-care and me time during the week listen, sometimes we get derailed. We have a really bad week. It all goes out the window, but on Monday, kind of reflect on, okay, what can I do different this week? Maybe I need to do a little plan, you know, see if somebody can help me out with certain things. So I can definitely get 
to reading a couple pages in that book that's just been sitting my by my bed for months or whatever it is. But again, playing some music that gives you kind of this mood boost, whatever it is that kind of helps you get that calm and, and feel like you're doing just a little something for you, because even though it's small, it's really important. Um, that's really what the Me Time Monday program is all about. And now I do a whole workshop, which takes you through seven different elements of finding better balance in life. And that workshop is for my employer clients that I have contracts with. Oh, I love that. I, and I love that you talk about baby steps because so often everyone thinks, okay, I'm going to cut the cord and I'm going to do this right now and everything's going to change. And a, when you're just by yourself and even aren't caring for anyone, you know, you get bombarded with life changes and it doesn't work. But then when you're caring for somebody, I mean, you have to be so fluid. And I think one of the hardest things for me was to really step into that joy and peace and calmness and realize, wow, five minutes can do a lot. If it can, I and it, we think it does it right. Like it's not going to make a big difference. Why? Why? But five to seven minutes. I like seven because seven is like kind of my my thing in the book. The power of seven. But you know, just those few moments that you're spending on you really do give you a boost. And it really, what it does from a brain health perspective is it makes us feel like we've accomplished something. And very often we don't accomplish a lot when we're caregivers because it's so chaotic and so fragmented and we feel like we're losing control of everything in our lives. So when we can just have a little bit back of something we accomplished after that few minutes of feeling good, that, that'll keep us going. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-494-8310. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-494-8310. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-494-8310. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Oh, it's huge. I remember when I used to sell real estate and I was, you know, super busy scheduling stuff and my number was 11. Everything was 11. And so I would take like an 11 minute break. I'd put, uh, I, I would shut my blinds in my office. I would put a sign outside my thing. I would turn my phone off. I would light a candle. I would put on some meditation music and I would just relax. And yeah. everybody knew in the office, don't go down the hall. <laughs> you know, Lori, this is Lori's quiet time. And right. I, would just, I would just feel like a brand new person after those 11 minutes, you know? And yeah. Even when I do like deep breathing, I do 11 deep breaths in, 11 deep breaths out. And, um, you know, on my inhale, I ask God or my higher power for what I need instead of I used to ask for what I thought I need. Um, needed. And then on the exhale, I ask for any toxins in my mind, body, heart and soul to like leave the building. And it's amazing how much it changes the chemistry in your body. 
and yeah. just centers you and makes you feel more in control. Well, it's kind of that cleanse, right? Of letting go. And one of the things I found really interesting, and by the way, I love that the science is backing us up now because the science is now telling us you don't have to do a 45 minute fast walk. If you just spend 10 minutes a day outside walking in nature, it has the same kind of benefit as these power walks that you might only get to once a week or whatever it is. But the nature connection to our brains is what I found so fascinating because there's a, there's a part of our brains, which we call the ancient brain. And it goes back to, you know, two to 3 million years ago when we're living out on the African savanna, but it's all about what we can see and smell the fresh air, the greenery, um, you know, the, the birds chirping, what we call kind of nature sounds, those things are so soothing and calming to our brains, particularly when we're stressed and we're under a lot of, you know, we feel like we're under attack or overwhelmed. So, you know, if you're at the hospital, let's say, and you're waiting for your loved one or the, you know, doctor's point, whatever it is, you know, a lot of the hospitals now are, have beautiful spaces where you can go walk outside and there's some green trees and you can sit I really encourage people to try to find connections to nature as much as possible. Now, sometimes with the weather night being so good, it's hard to get outside, but do you have a beautiful window you can just sit by and look outside? You mentioned, you know, the the sense, that that smell, that sense of memory and, you know, cinnamon is one that I'm, cloves and cinnamon right now are really big because it's fall. So I'm really into burning those types of candles, but those five senses, that multi-sensory you know, experience is what soothes our brains. And it's amazing how you can feel your stress start to just melt away by being in nature. And we're now talking about things like green exercise, blue wellness, which is about coastal living and, you know, ice cold therapy baths and all these kind of things. But, you know, water, that immersion in water, just taking the shower every day, doing a line of gratitude. It's amazing how much it can really, again, help you alleviate a lot of that stress burden that we feel. And I think part of it, like getting out in nature is you are absorbing it. Nothing's being asked of you to do. You can leave your worries behind and really just focus on, on beauty. And I think so often when we're giving care, we get overwhelmed and we get overloaded and, and we just, we don't, we don't look for the beauty, you know, yeah. because we're too busy being busy trying to figure out or how to prevent something that may or may not ever happen. I know yeah. I'm kind of a, that type A. And so I was a planner and I was making all these plans. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm missing out on the moment now because I'm planning for stuff and worrying about stuff that may never occur. And then like something slapped me in the face one day and said, Lori, if a crisis hits, you will gather everything within you and make the best possible plan. Stop planning. Stop ruminating, right? Exactly. Well, you know, something else that was fascinating when I was researching the book is there's this new program now, and this is for more of our professional caregivers, you know, a lot of them in maybe hospital settings or long-term care settings. But it's a room that they can go into because if they can't get outside and there isn't that beautiful pathway to walk around in greenery, they can go into this room, which is a relaxation room, and it has a big, huge screen, like a mini 
you know, movie theater and they can watch, you know, again, the waves on the beach or, you know, like climbing the mountain and seeing the beautiful trees and all that. And then there's the the sounds of nature. There's even some aromatherapy that, that some of them do. And they're using it to really address the burnout, which is so huge with, you know, our acute care workers and hospitals, our physicians, our nurses, and also our long-term care workers who either are coming into the home or senior living. So I think there's this big movement now towards really understanding how our brains work and how that connection to nature is so vital. Particularly, there's something that I found fascinating. It was called Huanaquatsi. And I'm fascinated by this. It's actually from the Native American Hopi language. And what it means is a life out of balance. Now, it was actually a documentary film that was done by Francis Ford Coppola of Godfather fame and, and uh, uh, Giorgio Godfrey and uh, Reggio Godfrey, I think. And what it was is the more technology that we have in our lives, the grid lines that you see in urban areas, the streets and all that, the technology we all have to use, the chimes, the tweets, the blood. Um, we can't get away from it because that's what our world's about. But we have to then have more nature to balance that technology. And I, I talk a lot about this in the book and I give some examples of different things. Like for instance, if you're in a city you're seeing the gray concrete, the streets, the traffic, you know, the lights that are artificial. And as you pull away from the earth and you get these NASA satellite pictures, you don't see any of that. You see beautiful blue oceans. You see white swirling clouds. You maybe see some greenery. That's what we need. We need that balance in our brains to help bring us back again, bring our lives back into balance. And that makes so much sense. I, I love that the corporate environments are kind of, and I don't know if they're calling them snoozling rooms. I know in, in the world of dementia and um, autism and stuff, that's what they're called. And it's just, and they can be built in many different fashions, but just to get that peacefulness, that quiet, because the, the burnout, the mental health issues are so huge these days. And you know, it's critical to be able for companies to be able to support their employees on that level. So kudos to them for, for doing that. And I, I just love that you keep using the word multi-sensory because I use it all the time and very few people do. But again, I think it's critical for us to get back into being relationship-based because it's about how we make people feel, not the tasks we do. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we can maybe not do a task as well, but really have that connection and make somebody feel good. And yeah. they still know we're trying our best, which is, a, which is a huge factor, you know, yeah. for them to, to, and, and again, we want that skill level up high, but again, it's a, it's a learning curve, especially for families, you know, there's, yeah. Not, there isn't training on how to handle every situation out there. It right. really kind of trial and error. And, you know, when it comes to dementia, what might work now might not work five minutes from now or, and work again in two weeks or tomorrow. So, yeah. you know, developing the toolkit is really, really a wise, wise thing. Yeah. Um, I want to, you know, in case people are just tuning in right now, I would really suggest that you kind of rewind and go back um, to hear the beginning of Sherry Snelling's story. We, we were talking about her wonderful work that she is doing, um, but we're kind of focusing on her new book, Me Time Monday. 
the weekly wellness plan to find balance and joy for a busy life. And I don't, I don't know of one person who doesn't say their life is busy these days. Right, exactly. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting because, you know, if you listen to the news, which unfortunately, you know, the news business is all, all based kind of on bad news. (laughs) Um, People like you who are doing great radio shows and podcasts and stuff are putting good news out there. You're giving really solutions to people, but if you turn on some of the news, it's always bad. And of course, with all the things that are happening in our world right now, it's hard to talk about joy um, because there's so many things that we don't feel joyful about that we're watching. But I think one of the things, and this is something else I write in the book about happiness psychology is we have very little control over diseases like Alzheimer's. We can't control it. We can't fix it. Sometimes we don't have a lot of control over other factors happening in our lives. You know, again, maybe leaving our jobs because we've made that choice or feeling whatever it is. And the one thing we do have control over though, is our own happiness, our own joy levels. And so if we can invest in things that give us those few moments of joy and happiness and soothe and calming and comfort, you know, all the good things, right? Um, That's really kind of the purpose of my book is I wanted to give some tools and solutions and stories. I tell a lot of stories in the book about different people in different circumstances, but finding that joy factor, I think is really critical for all of us. And again, it's about balancing, you know, we hear all the bad news. Okay. Where's the goodness? Where's the good in life? How do we bring that balance back so that we don't feel like we're immersed in this hot tub of bad things that are happening, right? Well, and that's really true. I guess I learned on my journey that, um, and, and again, not something I didn't know, but I didn't consciously, you know, um, focus on it was you will find whatever you're looking for. So if you want to find joy, it is before you all over in many, many different fashions. It might look different, especially if you're dealing with an illness, um, you know, or, you know, uh, it could be, it could be a divorce. It could be, like you said, losing your job. All of those things can be traumatic events, but there is still joy and hope. And we, we get the, we get the choice. What are we going to focus on? And again, you know, you can't overlook the negative either, you know, because sometimes there's safety issues that, that right. come with all of that as well. But don't ever feel like you're alone and that everything is just a black hole. Um, some of the most, I think, precious moments for me, you know, caring for my mom and dad were even in their very end stages of life, very minute little signs and many times that multi-sensory thing where it wasn't a word, it might have been a gesture or a smile or the dimples or a soft giggle or a twinkle in the eye that just melted my heart. And those are times, yeah. I, you know, I can name them and I will never forget them, you know, yeah. they're just so deeply embedded because of our connections. And I think I think so often we are so busy being busy, we miss those opportunities to to take that in. Yeah. Well, let's let's face it. Caregiving, you know, I think was it Betty Davis who said, you know, getting older is not for sissies. Well, caregiving is not for sissies. You know, we we have certain 
uh, amount of resiliency and strength in getting through things, although sometimes it doesn't feel like that in certain days. But there are, as you said, there are silver linings. You know, I tell a little bit of a story in the book about me and my my dad. So my parents were divorced when I was six. And uh, interestingly enough, people are always fascinated by this, but my dad's career, he was a Formula One race car driver. And so that meant that he moved to Europe so that he could be more on that global tour uh, that was going on. So I didn't grow up with my dad. I had a wonderful stepdad, by the way. He was just, just, I just adored him. So it's not like I had a sad story with that, but when my dad retired and came back to the U.S. and we hadn't had this relationship for all these years, we kind of, you know, would see each other occasionally. But then when we started, you know, he started reaching out more and I didn't realize it at the time, but he had been diagnosed with his prostate cancer, which was stage four. And I think he felt that that time horizon was slipping away and he wanted to, he wanted to know me and have me know him. And so I became one of the, you know, he, he had his wife, but I became a primary caregiver for him. And I have to say it was a gift and the silver lining of doing the caregiving for my dad. I could have been angry and, you know, mad at him, but it really, it, it made me learn a lot about myself and it made me kind of see him in a different light. And we shared so many stories about things over the years. And, and so I say to caregivers, as frustrated or angry or tired and overwhelmed and stressed as you can get during caregiving, sometimes there are silver linings. And boy, you know, I'm so glad I had that time with him because if he had passed without me having kind of that, those moments and that time, that quality time we shared, I think I feel really sad, much sadder right now than I do with him being gone. So it was truly a gift. You know, the way you framed your life, you know, you had a great stepdad, you know, so you had a, you had a good life. He got to do some neat things, you know, by stepping away from the family, which again, was tough, but there were, there were benefits to both and to be able to share those um, and get to know one another. I, so often I see people that um, really had a tough time maybe growing up and now they have to care for their parent and they're like, they didn't care for me. Why should I care for them? And they really, really struggle with that. What do you say to someone who's who's really struggling? I think I think there's, you know, again, we all go into these caregiving journeys very personally. There's no one size fits all. I would say if there was some type of abuse, um, you know, if there was something like that going on, I think it's very tough to turn a blind eye or to turn that pivot and become now a tender loving caregiver for somebody who maybe had made your life so awful. And I get it. Now you don't want to maybe abandon someone so you can get some professional help and you can still visit or you can, you can parse it out. Um, but other times it may have just been a misunderstanding or, you know, it was that teen angst and you didn't get along with your parents and you kind of moved away from home. And now all of a sudden one of them's dying or whatever it is. Sometimes that we grow and we learn about ourselves when we can overcome some of those emotional hurdles of childhood and young adulthood and see the world in a different place. Like I said, I could have really blamed my dad for leaving my, you know, my mom and me and my brother chasing his own dreams, being selfish, whatever. But, you know, as an adult, I think it helped me because I understood life choices and how hard they are and the things you compromise or give up or whatever. So I, I was in a better place, I think. 
And so I think it's all just where we're at in our lives, what we've got going on. I know very often we feel very obligated to care for loved ones, even if we don't want to. And I think that's a real struggle for a lot of caregivers out there. And in, in those instances, I say, this is where it becomes critical to have your care circle. So you may feel pressured into giving up time to take care of someone who didn't really care for you, who was mean or is still mean. That So you have to be able to come home to a loving, comforting family, or you need to have a circle of friends that nurture you. Um, and it becomes really critical to, ha- again, it's all really about balance, right? When we tip too far one way or the other way, we aren't happy human beings. We have to have that balance in life so that when things go bad or things go wrong, there's things that bring us back so we get that equilibrium back. And I think all of us kind of come into this in our own way, but I truly understand the caregivers who don't want to care for a loved one. So maybe it's just a financial support so someone else can be there to care for them so you don't feel like you're abandoning them but you don't have to maybe do the personal side of the care yeah and there can be that point too when someone is so frustrated where it could be dangerous you know if they're that angry and you don't want something like that to happen to either of you um, with that and then I've had others where like you said that they've healed through uh, through things I remember one gal calling me and saying she had to step back because she got ill. She got, I think it was breast cancer. And so she had to pull back from being kind of the primary for her mom and her and her mom were really close. But in that two years she was gone, another relative stepped in and then they became distant. And she said it was really hard when she came back in because the other person didn't really want her back in that space. And she said, I really need my mom to know how much I love her. And she said, but we're not, we've never been a touchy feely, say, I love you type of family. And I said, you just do what you feel is right for you. I said, and if you want to crawl in that bed next to her and give her a hug and tell her you do. And she's like, oh, Lori, she's just curled up in a ball, you know, just, um, just in the fetal position. And I don't think she has long. And I said, well, it's your choice. I said, but if you're if you're going to beat yourself up afterwards, do it now. So she crawled in the bed and she gave her mom a hug and she said, she responded. Yeah. And I said, sometimes they're waiting for the next generation to break something that, you know, they grew up with. And that's just how the family structure was, but they really want to invite that in, but they don't know how. And, and, and we can step in and do that. Now, not every, and not everybody's story is going to end like that. But again, it's choices that we, that we can make, or, or I've heard also too, where, um, especially with dementia is like, oh my gosh, I did not like my parent. They were so mean. I love this one though, because they have frontal temporal dementia and now they, they're just sweet as pie and very loving. Like, where was this person? And, you know, to think, you know, and people have even said, Gosh, if I wouldn't have stepped up, I never would have met this side of my parents. Right. And well, and, and I think really- I think you and I and I love that those stories because I think again, I think that very often I find so many caregivers are fearless. And fear is something that keeps us from happiness, right? It's that that roadblock. And so we're afraid we'll be rejected or we're afraid that you know, whatever will happen. And and the fear is on both sides. It's on the person that we're caring for side as well as our own side. But when we can overcome that fear, and in some ways also, we feel like 
well, are we, are we doing this for them? And very often the answer is yes, but are we doing it for us as well? So again, you know, with me caregiving for my dad, it became a gift to me um, that I didn't realize I would get in doing this, but it really did. And so we almost get as much out of that caring as the person that's getting, you know, that physical or emotional care, I think that we give. Oh, I agree. And a lot of times I think we get more. Oh, yeah. I I just think it's so important. The other thing I wanted to go back to, because you mentioned um, feeling all alone, and I know that both you and I have talked about this. This is an expression, I think, that's very common among almost all caregivers that I run into. And, you know, the U.S. Surgeon General came out with a report earlier this year that said one in two Americans are lonely. And this is a health hazard now. This is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of your heart health. We also know that chronic loneliness can lead to an increased risk in Alzheimer's disease later in life. So loneliness is a real big issue. And loneliness is different from social isolation where we might not, you know, maybe we live alone or we aren't as mobile and we don't drive anymore. Loneliness is more about the quality of our relationships. It's how we see, do we feel like people are there to support us? Do we have at least one confidant who has our back, you know, has our six as you will. And so the loneliness factor is one that's really important. And one of the things I write about in my book, so I, I talk about seven different elements of life that bring you back into balance. And most people think, okay, yeah, physical, you know, sleep, eat, you know, whatever, um, the emotional side, which is more of the mental health and how do you harness those four feel good hormones that help boost, boost your mood and make you feel better. The social side is really important. You know, having that, again, that circle of support for you is really, really critical. But then I get into things like intellectual wellness and environmental wellness Our 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 habitats, where we live, where we work, the environments, again, bringing that nature inside or having a view outside onto nature. It's amazing how much that really helps us. Financial wellness is also a big piece because let me say most stress is tied to finances, I think. And then of course we have spiritual wellness. And that's what I wanted to touch on is that When we express feeling all alone, we have to examine the quality of our relationships. Is there somebody here, a friend, a spouse, a partner, an adult child, a sibling that really cares for us and is there for us and and is our confidant, but also belief in a higher power? Because if you have that faith, then you aren't ever alone, right? And so I think we need to get back to really expressing that that feeling of a higher power, that there's something bigger than us in the universe or something bigger out there that's happening beyond all of these, you know, tragedies and crises and everything else. And when we can have that belief, all of a sudden we have this reservoir of resilience. It gives us that, that strength to keep going. And I think that's a really important part that, you know, we, we've lost a little bit of that in the country, right? And the, you know, we, we've stepped a little bit away from that. And I think it's a really important piece of our wellness plan. Oh, I agree too. There was a um, a little clip I saw that Brie Brown did. And, you know, my book, Betty, the bald chicken lessons and how we care, I always said was about, you know, wanting to fit in. And she did a study that she thought was going to focus on fitting in. And she said, what I found was people don't want to fit in. They want to belong. And she said, there's yes. a huge, huge difference. She says, belonging is when you are just accepted 
And fitting in is when you are manipulating yourself to be in a niche, you know, um, it kind of brings me back to junior high and high school, but I look <laughs> at all the stuff going on on Facebook and TikTok and, and that's what people are doing. They're trying to fit in and, uh, you know, I like this food or this club or these clothes or, you know, it's all kind of these artificial things instead of just being who you are and being accepted for that, being able to, you know, when, when you are able to be your authentic self, that alone gives you a calmness that gives you this appreciation of gratitude, your, your body's not working in high gear to, you know, try to read everybody and go, okay, is this going to work? Or isn't this going to work, you know, within? So I, I do agree having that higher power, no matter who it is for you, that is kind of the ultimate acceptance. And, Absolutely. and not feeling alone and lonely. And I loved when you talked about the difference from kind of self-isolation and feeling loneliness. And yeah. sometimes I think it's looking at who are the people in our lives um, sometimes, because I think sometimes we have people in our lives that make us feel lonely, or I shouldn't say make us, but we feel lonely because of them, because uh, we want something different, maybe from the relationship than what yeah. they can deliver to us. And that could be who you're caring for. It could be somebody totally different um, in your life, but being able to have that social support uh, for myself, I kind of pushed my girlfriends away <clears throat> when I was in the crux of caring for my folks. I thought, I have no time. Well, I, have, I can't go have coffee. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's kind of how I looked at it. Like, like, don't you guys get what I'm doing here? You know, there's no time. And, and, and I got really frustrated with them. And one day I said that I would go visit. And my total intent was to go and go, okay, they're off my back now. They'll leave me alone because I viewed them asking me to get together as another task. I mean, that's how yes. oriented I had gotten in my head. And I, I just thought, and I was kind of nasty, you know, even when I said, I'll give you 10 minutes, because that's all I had. I stayed for like two, two and a half hours, we laughed and we cried. Because you needed I, it. Yeah. And the weird part was, Sherry, I didn't know I needed it. You know, we get, we get so focused on everyone else's needs. I had no idea how empty my core soul was until, thank God, my friends didn't give up on me and they filled right. me up. But and, that's such an important story, Lori, because as you said, you were task oriented. You had things you had to check off that list every day to just keep it all, all the balls in the air, right? And it, it took you away from the sustenance that you really needed, which was that so those social connections. And, you know, the loneliness, I mean, listen, you can be married in a partnership, you can be at work, you can be even out at a social gathering and feel lonely. It's about the quality of the relationships and who you feel you can bond with to your point of fitting in versus, you know, that acceptance of really, this is why I love support groups, particularly for people who caring for someone with Alzheimer's because your sibling who lives across the country, your friend at work, your neighbor, your best friend, even if they haven't experienced that, they don't really understand what it means to care for someone with dementia and all the different things we can go through, wandering, sundanning, you know, all the things that happen with that disease. And, but you go to a support group and they get it. And I think those, and whether you do it online or in person, I think the support groups are so vital 
you know, to caregivers to keep going when you feel like, okay, I'm part of this little tribe of caregivers of someone with dementia. It's interesting because in the book, part of my research is, you know, soul cycle, which everybody got into and, you know, became obsessed with. They have now changed their business plan to something called peoplehood. And instead of going and doing sweat therapy, now you go and do talk therapy and they have gathers, they call them gathers, and they will put out a topic or an issue. And then they just invite people to come in and meet with others and talk about this and help and support each other. So it's, it's really like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is what we talk about in gerontology. But it's interesting that we're, we're trying to facilitate people coming together and having that bond with people. I think it's really a good movement. Well, and I like even just the term that they're using, like I had a really hard time even, and I still do with the term support group, because in my mind, it was like, oh my gosh, one more thing I have to do for my folks. I didn't see it. I did not see it as support for me. I saw it as I'm going to get educated to do something over here. And so I fought that tooth and nail going, I, I don't have time to breathe. I can't do this. And uh, the way I ended up falling into a support group was I was going to go see a colleague speak. And then he got sick and he didn't even show up. So I'm like in the support group going, oh, really? I mean, and that's kind of what's going on in my mind. Like, I don't, I don't want to be here, but I can't, I can't really sneak out. Right. And, I, and I stayed in this group. The facilitator was wonderful, though. And one of the questions she posed was she said, what do you miss the most with your loved one? And I thought, I miss a hug. My mm-hmm. mom, my mom couldn't move her arms to give me a hug anymore. And I just thought, oh, I'm coming back. You know, right. <laughs> everyone was sharing, <laughs> sharing these stories. And I really found it, it this was it, this was for balance for me. And granted, I could take some of those skills back. But I didn't, again, I didn't realize that it was a filler of my soul, that, right. that I would be in a tribe of people that understood. I, I didn't, I really totally didn't get that at all. I didn't. Right. See- well, and I think, I think, again, I think, you know, sometimes we can find that with friends, siblings who do make us feel like they get it, even if they haven't experienced it. And that's where that's a cherished friend. Hold on to that person. But very often they don't really get it. They might be empathetic or whatever, but really feeling again, like you belong, you know, you belong. That group has your back. They understand and they want to be there for you. Um, There's something in the book I called social convoy graph. So there's a little graphic in the book, but what it is, it's actually based on research that was done by um, uh, Dr. Antonucci at the University of Michigan. And so you are the center of the graph. And then you have a circle right outside of you. And that's the people you can call or the person you can call at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's that's your number one person. Then you have another circle outside of that. These may be people you can rely on here and there, maybe for different things. And then you've got your third circle. And these are more acquaintances. This might be somebody that's a good buddy that you can take a walk with or, you know, whatever it is, makes you laugh. Um, but it's really a visual exercise in showing who's really there for you. And it's interesting to plot it out because very often we have expectations that are unrealistic of a spouse, a partner, a sibling, and they're not showing up on that inner circle. They might not even be on the third circle. But, you know, when you look at it, 
when you're honest with yourself, now all of a sudden it's like, well, then I can't rely on my kid brother because he doesn't even make the social convoy graph. So, okay. And it gives you almost permission to say, okay, that's fine. Now I know what I've got. You know, I, I know where I'm headed and who's going to do that. Who's going to take this journey with me, right? Oh, that is so important. And that's probably one of the number one questions I get when I'm out speaking is how do I change my siblings? They don't get it. I want them to be like me. And it's like, the answer is you're not going to change them. Oh, let it go. And you'll find a lot more time and you'll be a lot happier and, and you won't be near as frustrated because like you said, you can't change them. You can lead by example and hope that they'll follow or pick up some clues. Right. that's really the best you can do. But boy, well, I would have learned that earlier. It's similar to relationships, right? Like I think there was that book that came out. He's just not that into you. You know, I think we've all, and women maybe can relate to this, but men as well. You know, you just really, really feel like you're in love with this person. And they just, they're just not that into you. And you have to just be realistic and say, there's somebody better out there for me. There's somebody that's going to be better. That's what it is with our siblings and friends. You know, it's very interesting too. In my first book, when I interviewed, you know, these celebrities, Holly Robinson, Pete, who has a great show on the Hallmark channel, by the way, a little shout out for her. She was a caregiver for both her dad who had Parkinson's and dementia and also her son who had autism. And one of the things that she told me is becoming a caregiver really tells you who your friends are, because there are friends who are not true friends, right? And they drop away really fast when you aren't fun and you aren't upbeat and happy and can go everywhere and do everything. And then there's those people that they are with you through the tough times. And she said, it's almost a great exercise to become a caregiver because you really do, you really start to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of those friendships. Oh, that's true. I also found that I had two circles of friends. I had many circles of friends, but they were, they divided into two groups. And both would ask, you know, how's your mom doing? And one really wanted to know. And the other one wanted to give me permission to never go see her again, because they were so uncomfortable with knowing what to do with me in the middle of that. And and that shocked me that absolutely. I'm like, I mean, because some of them were what I consider really dear friends. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I and it's like, like you said, well, I guess we're not as close as I thought we were. Right. Yeah. If you can only be my friend when everything's perfect, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But do you remember the times you've called me for support? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, our time is flying here, but I want to go back to your book because I'm sure there's a few more things in here that you want to tell us about. So we've got about seven minutes left. Um, what would you really like to highlight in here? Because there's just so much that can help people. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's a lot. I tend to just like, wow, I got to put everything in there. But um, I think some of the things that, you know, I felt were really important, as I mentioned, is just really understanding how our brains work. I think that aha moment of, oh, that's why I'm feeling that. And then also understanding, well, what will make us feel better? And I talked, there's a chapter called the four hormones against the apocalypse. So again, you know, we all have our own personal apocalypse and the four horsemen of the apocalypse brought the bad things. Well, these four hormones are going to help you face the bad times and the crises. And it's, you know, it's oxytocin, which is our love bonding and trust hormone. And we often get that again, when we are in physical presence, when we get a hug, 
or just a pat on the back when we're staring into someone's eyes and we're feeling that connection. Then of course there's endorphins and those are our pain relievers. And we get endorphins by movement and it isn't, again, it isn't a workout on a treadmill. It's just walking, you know, up and down the street, being in nature. Those are our, our, you know, pain relievers. Serotonin is our mood booster. And very often serotonin is based on what we're eating. Uh, because it's really tied to our microbiome, which is interesting. So I have a lot of information about that in the book because it's now being looked at by science as ways to treat brain health uh, issues like ADHD, autism, and even Alzheimer's. And then of course, um, we've got dopamine, which is the reward center and um, also our learning center. So I talk a little bit about those. I talk about emotional frequencies and how our moods and our outlook on life are very often tied to, again, the people around us. You know, we we usually feel a little boost in our energy frequencies when we're around kids because kids are so carefree and happy and laughing and bouncing around. Um, and so there's a chart on your emotional frequency. And what I tell people is, again, if you're on social media and you're doom scrolling, um, or you're only absorbing and taking in negative news, that technology has to be now balanced with going back out into nature and listening to the bird songs or whatever it happens to be. Um, the other thing is the environmental piece. I'm really, really into this right now, Lori, but it's all about our home environments, but also our work environments. And what can we do to make those environments more protective of us and be become places of healing and sanctuary. And so again, it's bringing nature inside and doing it in easy ways. Um, there's a lot of things that are now uh, tied to certain plants that you can bring into your home that help with air care. So it helps our health and our lungs as much as it helps the greenery that we see that keeps us positive. Um, so I think those are really important. You know, I, I talk to a lot of experts and one that I'm, I actually have a little crush on him. I'll admit I, he's married and happily married, I will say, but he's a, at the university of Oxford has a fantastic English accent. Um, but Dr. Charles Spence is really big on these multi-sensory, uh, research and he does a lot with music and then um, eating and dining. And so just for your audience, because we're talking a lot about dementia, here's something really fascinating. Um, we know that if we use red plates or blue plates, it will encourage our loved ones to eat their full meal or eat more, drink more. Um, but he found that playing certain types of music, and this is not just for dementia, but it does help. Um, so if you play high-pitched music, so think Mariah Carey, Taylor Swift, uh, you're going to increase the taste of the food tasting sweeter. So if you're a diabetic and you've taken a lot of sugar out of your diet, if you play music while you're eating of these high-pitched, high-tinkling pianos and all that kind of stuff, you'll actually feel like the food tastes sweeter. On the opposite side, let's say you have hypertension, which we know is a risk factor now for dementia, and you have to take a lot of the sodium and salt out of your food, then you want to play those, those baritones and those you know um, bass sounds, so Johnny... Cash or Frank Sinatra or, you know, Karen Carpenter even had a lower voice and 38% felt like the meal tasted more savory. So he was doing work with airline food and, you know, places like Starbucks, and he is now working in uh, memory care communities to help figure out the meals that will help with the appetite and the interest in certain foods. And he's turning 
for his mom who had dementia. She loved tomato soup. So he created an ice cream because all she would eat was ice cream because it was soothing to her. But he created an ice cream that was based on tomato soup. Now, I know that sounds odd, but it's actually very big in um, Asian cultures to have like more of an ice cream that has uh, more of that savory and umami kind of taste. And she loved it. And it was very nutritious for her. So I'm fascinated by things like that. You and I both know that music, of course, is so, so critical for people with dementia. Using those, again, I go back to the five senses, taste, touch, you know, sight, sound, all of these things are really, really critical. And I think we don't know enough about them. So hopefully the book is the start of learning a little bit more about that. And that that was what really engaged me and how much of the colors that we see will interpret our moods, how much of the sounds we hear will interpret how we taste, you know, and, and savor things uh, that we're eating or whatever. It's It's all to me really fascinating how our brains work. Wow, that is really interesting. I would love to talk with him and have him on the radio show. Um, so don't steal my boyfriend. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, <laughs> he's God. very, he's very wonderful. He's a, he's a wonderful talker. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just find that fascinating because there, there are so many people with dementia living with uh, diabetes that, that yes. is, oh, just they struggle with that so much. Well, Sherry, I could talk with you all day long, but we do have to wrap up. Um, again, for for those of you, you know, ch- listening, check out her book, Me Time Monday, The Weekly Wellness Plan to Find Balance and Joy for a Busy Life. Um, we just barely touched on the book. I mean, there's so much in this book. Uh, you won't be disappointed when you go purchase it at all. And um, I ask our listeners all the time to be a giver of hope, you know, like, click and share this show because other people in your sphere need this information. And that is one of Alzheimer's Speaks goals is to help connect people to services, products and tools, because I know what it's like being on the other side, feeling lost and not knowing where to go. And the more information we can push out. Um, and make this a comfortable conversation, the more likely people are going to reach out when it's their time in need. And hopefully even before it's their time in need so that they can get get educated. You can go to Sherry's website, which is caregivingclub.com. She has a blog. She's on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and then she, um, uh, you know, her book can be gotten, I'm sure through your website as well as Amazon or any of the bookstores and, and things yep. there. So again, Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a joy speaking with you. Well, Lori, thank you for having me on. You're a wonderful friend and colleague and such a great champion for caregivers and particularly for those with Alzheimer's and dementia. So it's a thrill being with you. Well, maybe we can work together soon again. That would be fun. We've, we've talked about that for 10 years. We got to make it happen. <laughs> I know, I know for sure, for sure. Well, you take care. And again, for our audience, uh, please, you know, check out alzheimerspeaks.com. There you'll find a lot of free resources that we have uh, for you to be able to tap into and spread the word. You can also check out our book, Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. 
We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.